Hello and welcome to Motopod, the internet radio show all about motorcycle road racing. This is episode number 703. I'm your host, Jim McDowell, and with us from UK, putting aside the sorrow for the moment with the passing of Queen Elizabeth II is Rich. Rich, I know things are kind of glum in the UK tonight, but appreciate you uh, soldiering on with a stick of lift as you Brits have. And my condolences to the entire United Kingdom for the passing of the Queen. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's it's only a couple of hours, well, perhaps three or four hours now since the news uh, broke because we're recording this on Thursday the 8th. So, yeah, it's I do feel pretty glum. I won't deny it. Uh, as I said to you earlier on, just in when we were chatting beforehand, I'm not a kind of a, an out-and-out sort of rabid royalist by any stretch of the imagination, and there's no doubt that reform is needed and is very, very likely to happen now that Queen Elizabeth has passed on. But yes, it's going to be a period of national mourning. I mean, we I haven't known another monarch. You know, we've kind of lost our captain, really. And it's going to be quite an adjustment, I think, for the nation to make. But um, anyway, as you say, stiff up a lip. We must go on. And we've got lots of racing to talk about and lots of racing to look forward to. So let's uh, take that as a bright note on a slightly dark day. Yes, there's always going to be racing for us to talk about, which will always bring a smile to everyone's face. Yep. With that... Guys, if you like the show, if you could go to your podcast platform where you get the show, if you could leave us a review, that'd be fantastic. If you have a little spare change in your pocket, you can donate to the show. Just go to www.motopodcast.com. On the right-hand side of the page, there are links for PayPal and Patreon. Every little bit helps. Uh, helps us to pay for the server costs. Helps Rich and myself to get to a few races here and there. And every bit is greatly appreciated. Now, before we get into the news... Have you guys ever wondered about driving your car really fast on the track? Well, we have an opportunity for you to do that. Rally for Vets is holding a track day at the Summit Raceway Shenandoah Valley Circuit there. And you can hear a little bit more about that from Mr. Robert Hess right now. Hello, everyone. My name is Robert Hess, and I lead a veteran charity that is hosting a new track series supporting veterans coping with PTSD. The format is a track cross, like a time trial, but with just one car running on the track at a time. Our next event is the Top Dog Championships, scheduled for Summit Point's Shenandoah Circuit on October 22nd. Registration is open on motorsportreg.com. Just search for Top Dog Track Cross. I hope you join us and finish as a Devon Top Dog Champion while you help our veteran community. Thanks, Robert, for the information. Remember, guys, you can go to rallyforvets.com and you can find out more information about it. Oh, Rich, I the news is much bigger than the racing, I think, this weekend. And uh, I'm, I agree. Not, I'm not so sure I know where to start, but we're going to start with MotoGP. And why don't we just have like a little bit of uh, rider uh, silly season confirmations going on. Yes. Well, st- let's start out with Moto3. Let's start with the little bikes. We know now that Dennis Foggia will ride in Moto2 next year on the Ital Trans team, which means somebody's leaving Ital Trans. Then that has been reported that it will be uh, Delaporta who's been released from tel- from Ital Trans. That kind of came out sort of like Sunday ish that he had been released from that. And there also are very strong rumors that Joe Roberts will not ride for Ital Trans either. Uh, he's going. He is rumored to be on the move to the Pons team and will partner Kinnett. 
I think that's going to be a very interesting bit of uh, teammateism, if you will. Don't you think, Rich? Yeah, I think probably Roberts has had his chance at Itel Trans, hasn't he? It hasn't really, for one reason or another, worked out. I know he got the win, what was it, at Portimao, I think, Jim, last yeah. year. But that was the kind of the crazy shower that happened and took half the field out, <laughs> you know, at turn number one or two. So um, it's not a big surprise that he's moving on. Um, just going back to what you were saying about Della Porta, I wouldn't be at all surprised, in fact, if he and Foggia do a kind of uh, bike swap effectively, because there was some talk, which you probably heard, about Della Porta perhaps dropping back down to Moto3 again. So him dropping into the Leopard squad in place of Foggia and Foggia moving up to Ital Trans, as has been confirmed, sort of makes a bit of logical sense. But I guess we'll find that one out. In a, in a week or two's time when more, new, more news emerges. Yeah, I do think that uh, Delaporta is going to go back to Leopard. I think that that's where he's going. I think it's going to be interesting with Roberts versus Kennet. Um, mm, yeah. Uh, I, I think that it might help Roberts because he might have a teammate who is faster than him and he can sort of look at the data maybe perhaps and see what he needs to do to improve or find a bit of consistency maybe yeah uh, not really sure it could also be extremely terrible because Kinnett might just shade roberts to the point where roberts is going to be out of a job so uh it could go either way not sure yeah i think we're going to see quite a lot of musical chairs in moto too because there isn't really many seats or any seats bar one that we're going to talk about, you know, in terms of Moto2 riders going up to MotoGP. So I think there's going to be a fair amount of flux in the Moto2 uh, silly season that appears to be getting going now. So, I mean, for example, we don't know where Jorge Navarro, who currently occupies that spot next to Kinnett in that team, where he's going to go. But he's been pretty much AWOL all season, hasn't he, really? And Kinnett, even, you know, he was being tipped as a potential MotoGP mover, but still hasn't won a race in Moto2, let's not forget. So, I mean, he needs to be careful as well, doesn't he? Yeah, well, I remind you that Juan Mir never won, never won a race in Moto2, and he's a world champion. In yeah, Moto2. true. So, true. I don't know what all this means, but I do know it's going to be interesting, that's for sure. And let's, let's not forget that Joe Roberts was offered the Aprilia MotoGP ride a couple of seasons ago and turned it down, if you recall. So, yeah, yeah I mean, I don't know, you're damned if you're doing, damned if you don't sometimes, I guess. I agree. We know that Marcel Schroeder is out at his uh, the Dynavolt Intact GP team. Is he going to retirement? Don't know. Is he going to go to World Superbike? Maybe. Don't know. Were your thoughts, Rich, from there, where he might go? Yeah, I, I'm wondering whether his time in the Grand Prix palette might just about be done, because I might be wrong on this, Jim, and this is where we could do with a Harry Lloyd, I suppose, on our side, but I've got a feeling that Schroeder might have been around right at the end of the one two five. Uh, two-stroke formula uh, even so I mean he's been around for an awfully long time and you just wonder whether or not he might be the sort of guy that might end up in I don't know super sport over in the world superbike paddock perhaps but yeah it's clear that he's out of that team and it's hard to see a team that's equivalent or better than the intact team picking him up I, I think I mean that's maybe a little bit harsh but I don't know what you think but I'm guessing probably he's either going to sort of dwindle away now or go to another series altogether. I know that he is the has the most starts in Moto2 of anyone. Yeah. So okay. he's been there for a very long time. 
Um, his time in the paddock, in the GP paddock, has expired. Now, if if he goes to if he goes and rides off into the sunset, or goes to World Superbike, or BSB, or the German German National Series, I forget what they call that. Don't know, but we shall see what happens with that. Yeah. The most interesting Moto2 news is that Augusto Fernandez will ride in MotoGP next year alongside Paul Spargaro in the Gas Gas team. Well, we already knew that Remy Gardner was already released from his KTM contract, but what we found out this week is that Remy was released because he was told he was not professional enough. I am unsure what that means, Rich. Mm. Well, um, as you've put in the notes here, Jim, Simon Crafar, I thought, was quite brave and very professional in the way that he took Pit Barra on. I think it was in, perhaps, was it the Friday practices? It was certainly quite a, um, maybe hard-hitting interview is not quite the word, but he asked him some pretty tough questions. And under pressure, I don't think Pit Barra did himself or KTM too many favours in trying to give a clear answer to a fairly straight question, did he? Because... I don't know. There's obviously a lot that's gone on behind the scenes there. Um, it is certainly true because we have discussed this in past seasons, uh, sorry, past races. And I'm thinking back to Le Mans as a particular incident where Remy himself made a statement along the lines of what I think it was when asked about, you know, if it was going to be a wet race, what were, what was his thoughts on that? And he made some kind of flippant remark about um, hoping that there might be a tornado. So we didn't actually have to ride the bike at all. So you can kind of see that there's been some needle going on between rider and team. I think this has been exacerbated by uh, Remy's manager in terms of some of the things that he has said in public against the team and the bike. So it's all got rather messy and unedifying, really, in the public forum. But, you know, my sort of position on this to some extent is that, you know, bringing Fernandez up from Moto2, okay, you know, he's a good rider and he might do okay, but, you know, he's another rookie and what they really need is some people with some experience on that bike, in my opinion, because clearly the bike is an issue and the more knowledge and development time they get that's consistent, the better. You know, they've got Paul Espargo returning from two desolate years at HRC. They're losing Miguel Oliveira, who's a good development rider, I believe. So, you know, I, it's all a bit of a mess, Jim, isn't it? Yeah, it seems like the wheels kind of came off of KTM here. I'm not too yeah. sure what all has transpired. Yes, Remy has said some things in public. Every rider has said things in public that they probably should not have. I think that goes with the territory, especially when someone shows a microphone in your face after you got done racing a 300-horsepower motorcycle and a rain racer, whatever, take your pick, right? I mean, mm. your mind is not really focused on anything other than the fact that you survived, and now you got somebody asking you poignant questions, and you say something flippant about the bike, and everyone goes running around and tweets it again and again and again, and you wind up with this problem. I do wonder why KTM has PR people, because in this instance, someone should have proofread something and put something else in the press release or said something else other than not professional enough. Like that to me was a sign that Kate, that the wheels are off at KTM because they're not even getting themselves together to put a cohesive front on this. 
and you got to, you know, you have to watch what you say because it's a very, everything is a very polished thing now. This is not the rough and ready, you know, 70s or, or, or you know, the early part of the 80s where you could get away with almost anything. Yeah, yeah. It, I, I think, um, well, fundamentally, it, it is, whether this is true or not is besides the point. What it now looks like is a revenge sacking, either against things that Remy has said or things that his manager has said. But then, you know, Wayne Gardner was starting to tweet out things against Remy's manager. And then you had Remy Gardner sort of apologising and saying people shouldn't listen or take much note of what Wayne was writing on tweets. So it's all become a bit of a farcical, you know, freak show, really, in my opinion. But fundamentally, as I say, you know, they are going to replace Remy Gardner with another rookie who... I think if you were to look at the data, is actually doing worse than Remy did last year at this point, and may not well may well not be the Moto Two World Champion this year. I mean, Fernandez is looking good for that title, but you know he's got a fair way to go to secure it. And Remy Gardner is the reigning Moto Two World Champion, and for most of this year, as far as I recall, has outshone Raúl Fernandez in that team. So I just think it's a curious decision to let him go when they're in such a state of flux with the other riders coming and going from both Tech 3 and the main works KTM squad itself. So very messy. And to further the mess is the fact that, you know, Remy's looking to go back to Moto2. Now, could he go back with a Taltrans? I don't know, but if his dad doesn't shut up on Twitter, he may not get a ride in Moto2 because he, you know, KTM has done him no favors by putting out that he's essentially damaged goods. Mm. Yes. I mean, you know, this is the boy's livelihood. And yeah, I get it. There's been, you know, numerous instances of fathers who have done things that are not correct and have caused all kinds of problems. I could give you the Lewis Hamilton example. I could probably, you know, I think of anybody who who did it maybe right, it might have been Kenny Roberts Sr. with his son Kenny Jr. because, you know, he forced him out onto his own and did his own thing and has kept his mouth shut even when the bike was not successful. But yeah, this is this one is. I don't know how Remy's going to come out of this one with a ride, but uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see. Part of the trouble that he's got, Jim, is that, and again, they're arguing about what the timing of all this actually was uh, in terms of firm decisions. But this is all obviously happening at a time of the season when there aren't many places to go to in terms of the places that he might have wanted to naturally progress to. Because people keep saying, "Oh, will he go to World Superbike? Well, where's he going to go?" I mean. You want to be on one of three teams in World Superbikes, and there doesn't appear to be any openings there for him. You know, HRC and World Superbike, who, okay, are not one of the top three teams, but they're catching up. But they've reconfirmed Lekuona and uh, Vieje for next year. So, I mean, I don't think Remy Gardner really wants to go to World Superbike and tool around on a sort of slightly subpar uh, customer, you know, Kawasaki or whatever it might be so at this moment in time Moto2 looks like the only realistically good place for him to go but it's a bit of an egg on the face situation for him because he probably doesn't want to go back to Moto2 having won the championship and done a pretty decent job I think on what everybody knows is a tricky bike Mm, Agreed Let's move to MotoGP and their silly season and see if we can finally maybe finish and fill out the grid Yeah we now know that Bashanini has been chosen, has become the chosen one to be Pecco's teammate. Is this the correct decision, Rich? Yes, it, uh, for me, it absolutely is. Um, 
primarily because I think Bastianini has done a better job than Martin on balance over the course of the last season or so. I know Martin has been injured for quite a lot of that period, but, but he's been injured because he's been falling off a lot. And by and large, Bastianini has been less likely to end up in the gravel. And I just think Martin is, well, I'm going to probably make myself a bit unpopular now. I think he's just a bit full of himself and a bit reckless. I mean, if you look at the move he pulled trying to overtake Miller at the Red Bull ring, uh, the, the last race, you know, on the penultimate lap and he fell off in trying to do it. And then a couple of days later, the news comes out that Bastianini was confirmed into the work squad. So I think probably on balance, Bastianini's is fast. He's impeccably good at maintaining a tyre, as we've seen many, many times, and being fast at the end of a race. And although we're going to have a discussion probably in terms of the Mizano race, where he was, I think, sailing a little bit close to the line in terms of the last lap, but it was very exciting to watch. He, I think he is the steadier set of hands. But there is no doubt that Ducati works team and Bastianini have got to have their hands full with him next year because he doesn't look like the sort of guy that's going to want to play any sort of a form of second fiddle, does he? Nope. I agree. <laughs> Not at all. I agree with everything you said. I definitely believe it was the correct choice. Uh I'm not too sure why the wheels have kind of come off Jorge Martin. I would have thought for sure he would have been a shoo-in for that seat. He just simply has either not got it together or Bastianini has just simply rode better. Now, Bastianini is also on a bike that Benyaya made look really good. It's a year-old Ducati. If he gets on, you know, there's always the possibility that he gets on the factory bike and he'll lose his way. I don't think so. I think Bastianini is, is truly a talent, and he is going to spice it up next year in the Ducati pits because he's not going to play second fiddle to Ben Yaya. He's going to beat him every chance he gets and it's not going to matter to him one iota what he does or doesn't do. Yeah, totally. And it's going to be great for us to watch that because that is going to be a hell of an interesting dynamic in that team. Yes, it will be interesting to see how David Tardazzi chooses to control his riders, which means he won't, which means it's going to be even more fun to watch. Well, I mean, Ducati works team are famously poor at managing their riders and, and the relationships with their riders and the relationships between the riders. So it's going to be incendiary, I think, is probably the word to use. <laughs> Let's see. Well, I, I look at it this way. We have exactly two-thirds of a fire triangle. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. We're looking for an ignition source. There, There's there's propellant and there's, there's plenty of air. So uh, who knows what's going to happen there. Since we know that Bastianini is going to run on the factory team, instantly after that came the news that Martin was re-signed with the Pramac team, and so was Johan Zarco. We didn't really expect him to go anywhere else at that point, so that's another set of seats taken up. Yeah. Worst-kept secret in the paddock finally was confirmed, and that being that Juan Mir would go to HRC, which leads me to wonder how him and Mark Marquez are going to get along there because, as an interesting article on MotoGP.com after this came out, was, hey, here's all the prior world champions who were teamed together, and look what happened. And wow, you read through that, and it's like, wow, here's Casey Stoner and Nikki Hayden. Casey won three races, Nikki won none. Oh, here's Nikki Hayden teamed with Valentino Rossi and the Ducati. None of them, neither of them won a race that year. 
and so it's uh, you know Jorge Lorenzo and Mark Marquez were put together on the on the Repsol team, and Jorge couldn't do anything with that bike, and Mark rode off to another championship. It's going to be really interesting to see how Mir goes with that Honda. Yeah, I mean it's a big unknown whether he will gel with the bike full stop. His, I think most people that know more about this than I do uh, tend to sort of be on the side of saying that because he has a very extreme late braking sort of all on the front end style that that is likely to lend itself to the Honda but I think beyond that his biggest issue is that he goes back into a team that is still firmly Marquez's domain isn't it and if testing which we're going to come to in a minute is anything to go by you know he's going to have a job on his hands to outperform Mark so and that's really how he will be measured so it's going to be a tough ask I think for Johan Mir going into that team but again we'll see to say it's going to be a challenge is to make it an understatement that is a big understatement yeah and I, I know I know I'm making it an understatement in saying that he has a huge job on his hands because let's be honest he very deservedly won the championship in what 2020 was it yes um but it wasn't a stellar season in terms of fastest laps and wins and so on, was it? It was a very stealthily won championship, a bit like Kenny Roberts did all those years ago, Kenny Roberts Jr. And so, yeah, he's got his hands full. And we're going to be talking about Mark Marquez in a minute, I think. I mean, the jury's obviously still out. There's still a lot of uncertainty around Mark. But he's put some fairly big ticks in a few boxes over the last couple of days. Yep. Let's finish up the silly season here. So Oliveira and Raul Fernandez will be teammates at RNF Aprilia. I think we all knew Oliveira was going there. The surprise to me was Fernandez going there. Although there was a lot of talk that he was going to go there anyway. Mm. Um, but that one still kind of took me, not by surprise, but made me go, huh, that's kind of interesting. That is a strong team on paper though, isn't it? Let's be honest. I mean, th- very much a kind of love him or hate him character, as we've discussed many times, Raul Fernandez. But if he could replicate anything like his Moto2 form from last year in the big class, then he's going to be pretty good to watch. And Oliveira, I know he's a four-time MotoGP race winner. There aren't many people in pit lane that have that accolade to brag about. So, you know, he's a quality rider. Had a struggle on the KTM for the last year and a half. It's true, but on that Aprilia, I think he could be pretty spectacular. So that looks like one hell of a lineup to me. I agree. I think he's got a chance to do very well on the Aprilia. Dare I say he may outshine Aleish? I don't know. Just well, maybe. somebody else is starting to outshine Aleish, uh, which again is something we need to talk about, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it's going to be a bit of an embarrassment of riches from Aprilia's point of view, provided they don't drop the ball with the 2023 works bike, let's just remember that the RNF squad are not going to be on bang up to date machinery. They will be on this year's bikes next year, but that's not necessarily a bad thing um, for obvious reasons. So yeah, I I think RNF are going to have a quite an interesting year next year. Yeah. By my count, there is one seat open at LCR. I will assume that Nakagami gets that, although I think they're kind of wondering what is going to happen with Ayagura. Yeah. And at the time, there were two seats open at the Mooney VR46 team. However, 
We now know that Bezeki's been confirmed at Mooney, so that leaves only two seats on the grid available. One LCR seat, we think that's Nakagami, and then anybody, it could be anybody's seat at VR46. Well, yeah, although I think, you know, Luca Marini's done, as far as I'm concerned, he's done more than enough to justify being re-signed in that squad again. And let's not forget, he is the half-brother of the bloke who owns the team. So I think it would be pretty rough justice if he didn't stay on the bike next year. I don't know. What, what do you think, Jim? I mean, I think Marini's had a, a quiet but very uh, successful year on that bike. Slightly outshone, perhaps, by Bezaki, who's a rookie. But nevertheless, between the two of them, they've been racking up the finishes and the points. Um, they're on two-year-old Ducatis, right? So they're on, yeah, like, 20... What was it? 20... No, 20. 20 Ducatis. Um, I, I think he's done well. Uh, he is, as you say, Valentino's half-brother. I, I think he gets signed again. It's probably a formality, but as of right now, there's no pen on paper, and Rossi's free to do whatever he wants to do with that team because it is his, and it might be just as simple as Rossi says, hey, you're going to ride for us, and it's done. Yeah. I think the, I think the interesting thing, going off at a slight tangent with the Mooney team, is whether or not they transition across to becoming a semi-works, if not almost parallel works, Yamaha team in 2024. Hmm. Interesting thought. I, huh. Somebody needs to, and I'm sure Yamaha must be planning to get another two of their bikes on the grid. I know they're taking a sabbatical because of what's happened with RNF switching over to Aprilia, but that was very much RNF's decision rather than Yamaha's, I think. But they've taken the opportunity to say, look, we need to focus on the bike and make some developments. And again, we're going to talk about that in a minute because that looks as if it might be going in the right direction. And I'm pretty sure that they will want to have another two bikes on the grid and hooking back up with their most successful rider ever with his own team now seems like a very logical step to me. I see the connection. I'm not so sure it happens. Only in the sense that I do not think that Yamaha uses that satellite team as a development team. I feel like they use that simply as a money making proposition to prop up the factory team. It's always been when Tech 3 was there, it was always last year's bikes, here's a bunch, here's some kit and pretty much thank you for the paycheck and they walked away from it. And you could always see that at the beginning of the year the the Tech 3 guys were at the front very close to the front, maybe on the front row first couple rows and by a third of the season, the other teams had progressed, and then that bike simply falls off and became kept going slower, slower, and slower. And then, you know, when Rossi was at RNF, he did have a factory bike and whatnot. So I understand that Yamaha may want to have another bike, but if they use it correctly, and I think Rossi's smart enough to know that if you're going to do it, you better give us some good equipment to do it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Then, yeah, it's going to probably happen. I... The, I I just don't know which way Rossi leans on this one, to be honest. Because there's a bunch to be said for Rossi being Italian and having an Italian bike and an Italian team with Italian riders. Yeah, I think uh, historically, Jim, I mean, you're absolutely correct. There's absolutely no denying the fact that it was a case, always a case of sloppy seconds when Tech 3 had Yamaha and more recently when RNF had them. 
But I just wonder whether or not Yamaha have woken up to the fact that looking at what Ducati have done and what Aprilia are now doing, you need a well-funded, well-resourced satellite team running pretty much not completely up-to-date works because the works works team will always have the you know the the pick of the brand new bits and people always go on about the new bits as if that's the be all in the end all but there's nothing to say that new bits are always better i mean sometimes it is better to be on a well-sorted slightly older version of the bike so if yamaha do put another two bikes out there i'm pretty sure they are now going to follow the model which is you need a, a fairly up-to-date kit plenty of tech guys and girls in that satellite garage to give full support and have a couple of really fast riders to aid the overall development otherwise what's the point and i don't think rossi would enter into it if that wasn't the nature of the deal i i agree with you on that i think it's just speculative and i like it yeah we're just <laughs> gonna see. we're just gonna have to <laughs> see if it happens or not well so let's get to the testing that happened after the weekend let's talk about that yeah. So Mark Marquez was back on a motorcycle. He was deemed fit. He did like 39 laps on uh, Tuesday. He did them all before the lunch break. He did not return after the lunch break as he said that you know his arm was sore and his shoulder was sore. I get that. Um, a 280 horsepower motorcycle trying to wiggle that thing around on a right-handed circuit, regardless of whether you are fully fit or not is going to tax your body and obviously mark's arm is not fully fit he did come back on wednesday and set uh was it 60 laps i think he did a fair amount of laps he did a lot yeah he did a lot which was good he says that the arm feels good and the things are working the way he expects them to work so apparently this uh rotation the surgery to rotate his humerus bone to put everything back in line apparently has worked and that is a good sign he also tested a boatload of stuff for hrc at one point i think he had three different bikes to test with he had a 21 bike there was a 22 bike with a different air intake there was a 20 call it a hybrid 2022 slash 23 bike with an aluminum swing arm that was supposedly built by kalex which goes to show you that Honda is definitely searching for grip and maybe they might find it with a new swing arm. I mean, they've ran carbon fibers of their own of their own build for years on that motorcycle. I think Honda pretty much threw everything but the kitchen sink at the bikes at the test. And hopefully they found a direction that they want to go in so that they can build a true prototype 2023 bike and hopefully Marquez will be fully fit, ready to go. He might even have one or two race weekends that he may have. Uh, and he could be race fit and ready to go for testing. And we shall see what happens there. I think there's a fairly decent chance he's going to be out in the next race, Jim, at Aragon. I saw that video when he was asked. And he said, no, not right now, not strong enough. Does he do, hmm. is that just him being coy and he just rocks up and blows everybody's butt off at Aragon? I don't know. I don't think he could do it. I don't think he could win a race right now. Um, well. But um, anything's possible. Anything. I would not put anything past Mark Marquez. You can't. <laughs> and, you know, arguably, you said Honda threw everything but the kitchen sink at it. I mean, arguably, they need to chuck the kitchen sink in there as well. I mean, clearly they are doing things differently. 
I'm just looking at, I think this is the two-day combined test times. I mean, we must point out that out of 28 runners and riders, Marquez posted 13th fastest time overall. He was 0.588 off the fastest lap of all and was the fastest Honda of all. So, I mean, that's a pretty stellar comeback considering he's been through a major surgery and he's been off the bike for, what, two six weeks, two months? I mean, it's not that long, is it? I'm trying to think back. It was after Mugello, wasn't it? Uh, mm. Mugello was in May, right? May, June, July. Okay, so he's been off the bike for a while, so it makes it even more impressive in a way. And I think he'll be back on the bike pretty quickly, to be perfectly honest with you. And let's not forget, very interesting what he said, that, was it Red Bull Ring, about the whole Honda needs to change its kind of mindset and change its direction in terms of how it goes about developing the bike. What happens at the next round, or certainly at the test following the next round, the horror of horrors, I mean, from Honda's point of view, they've got a third-party OEM <laughs> swinging arm on the bike. I mean, who the hell saw that coming? I mean, that was would have been unthinkable a few years ago for Honda to admit that their in-house equipment wasn't up to scratch and they had to go out to the market and try something different. I mean, that is a major, major change of direction from them. And they rocked up with uh, different sets of side panels for the bike that looked like uh, more along the lines of what Aprilia had with the sort of the bubble look to it and more in a Ducati-esque kind of thing where they're trying to find maybe some compression of air between the side of the bike when it's leaned over in a corner to help it get stabilized and gain more grip. I mean, there was a, there was a very distinct direction of we are trying some crazy arrow here to make the bike better as well. Yeah. Following, following the, I mean, there was even a bigger, more mustachio style set of front wings a la aprilia that was there i mean yeah it's amazing that marquez says we need to go a different direction and here they rock up in three weeks with just a truckload of kit to throw at these bikes it's incredible well and it's exactly what we were hoping to see i mean without being disingenuous about this we've been sort of lamenting and chastising in our own kind of armchair enthusiast way you know the the fact that the japanese factories have kind of seemingly lost their way and and we've tried to caveat that in terms of some reasons you know that have led to that situation and of course these are the the reasons for that are, are many and varied but great to see that well yamaha as a segue into the next point that we're going to talk about and certainly honda uh, have grasped that challenge with both hands uh, and are chucking new bits at things and obviously are trying to do something different now, even if that means testing other people's equipment and doing it crucially, doing it in public, because that, I think, is the big change. They've always been very reluctant to do stuff like this in front of the, you know, the prying eyes of the world's media. And, you know, lo and behold, we've had two days and Honda look better and Yamaha look much better. So let's come on to your next point, Jim. Yeah, Yamaha seems to have found some speed. And they have. They have. I mean, I think Quattro was fastest on day two. So Second overall in the speed trap, I think, yeah. Yeah, so between... It looks like it's more motor than anything else. I wonder if the motor guy we talked about, the ex-Formula 1, the guy who helped Aprilia with their bike, if he has found something like hey, do this and get some more horsepower out of that motor or more torque or whatever it is that they need. 
and it looks to be right. In fact, they're so Quattro likes it so much they might bring that motor to Aragon. Are they allowed to do that though, Jim? I mean, this was being discussed uh, between um, uh, Jason Pridmore and um, uh, Greg on on the moto uh, uh, or the garage pod rather that mm. we often mention, and I. I'm pretty sure these engines are sealed for this year. So I think this uh, has to be a 2023 engine, doesn't it? This is how I understand the rule. The rule is that you can have, what is it, five engines, okay? And yeah, they're all sealed. But if you've never put that engine in the bike and put any miles on it, you're allowed to take that engine out of the rotation and put another engine into it. I, hmm. I I'm think not I so think sure, but well, I, I could be yeah. I could be wrong, but I'm kind of pulling from the fact of how Yamaha did it when they had the valve problem in early onset of 2020 and whatnot. They had motors allocated and they were able to change out motors. Now, I don't, maybe that was an exemption because they had a a part failure. I, I don't know. I think it was, and if you recall back to um, the early tested in Mandalika before the season kicked off where it was quite clear that Yamaha had some straight line speed issues and the talk at the time was well they're stuck for this year what are they going to do about next year and I think what Quattararo has been testing this year is the 2023 engine so I'm not entirely convinced that they can run that engine this season because I think whilst they have a five engine allocation that engine is effectively homologated and they can't change it for a new unit might be wrong and i'm not sure it'll be pointed out to us if if i am wrong on that but i think irrespective just the fact that quattro was smiling and looking much much happier which is in very stark contrast to previous tests where he's been quite demonstrably very angry about the lack of progress and clearly this test really brought a smile to his face and he's very pleased with that development on the engine because that is where they have been lacking isn't it so that points to well better things for yamaha next year and perhaps a bit more trouble for the ducatis uh, certainly where fabio is concerned it must be said that whilst quattro was fastest in the test overall the next quickest yamaha i think was morbidelli and he was back in 12th so they've still got that problem that quattro is appreciably faster than all the other yamaha riders but anyway I mean, that's that's what the that's what the lap times are showing. So, at least it's an improvement. True, Ducati worked on some aero bits, and that was about it. You know, it's not a broken, I don't have fixed it. You know, <laughs> nice accent, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I I get it. The the horde is strong. Why 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 chance anything? I'm sure there's a little. I'm sure there'll be some magic from Digilinia for next year. There always seems to be, but that always ever only ever rocks up at the Malaysia test, or uh, you know, or often some in Indonesia or something like that. So, yeah. oh, I don't think we really expected Ducati to have much anyway. Aprilia had a new chassis though, and they had some new um, aero as well, and the chassis was well liked by Aleish, so it's possible that he may race that chassis at Aragon. We'll see okay. what happens when we get to there. KTM was touted as having a full-on 2023 prototype that was being tested. They denied that it was a 2023 prototype and said no, they did, but they did test bits and bolts and bobs of 2023 parts, and most of that donkey work was done by Brad Bender. 
So that sums up basically testing from Mazzano days after the race. On the Friday, the MotoGP uh, released the results of the fan survey, and there was some interesting tidbits in there. It was like the fact that you know the their uh, subscription service for the video on demand and whatnot had decreased, like in Europe, and most people want to get it from Eurosport or another live terrestrial platform. But in the States, in the United States, that had been increased as the number of people that were watching it on the Dorna feed as well. So that was interesting. They were very much about wanting to attract more females to the sport. And that they were trying to do that. That was going to be their thing. Their thing was to bring more females to the sport. And then... <laughs> which was I, I really don't want to I really don't want to have to go here with this but I, we we're, we're going to have to because it's, it's part of the news we then, can't not yeah, you, you can't, can't you can't not this. I mean but then they say hey we've got a um what is that memorandum of understanding with Saudi Arabia to race in Saudi Arabia okay we're gonna we want to bring more fans to the races more female fans and you decide that you're going to do this by going to a country that is pretty harsh when it comes to women's rights. Um, yeah, I don't... I mean, this whole... If you want to know the whole story, go go search it up from F1 when they went to, to Jeddah for their race there. I don't want to spend the time going through all of it, but it's, it's just sort of like you say one thing and then you are going to go do another. And I'm like, wow, it doesn't make a lot of sense but i it's the money thing right rich yeah well well yes i mean i don't see what else you could possibly attribute it to really but i i mean in a quite stunning piece of pr own goal shit once again dawner managed to cock up on the most almighty front in terms of the timing it shouldn't come as a perhaps as a huge surprise that they're cozying up to places like this because we know there's a a, a colossal wealth fund as part of the i got I, you chose your words very wisely uh and i suppose i should do the same because i don't want to end up in a small pieces in a black bin bag any more than anybody else does but i i think it would be fair to say that saudi arabia is quite famously whitewashing itself and using sport as the medium with which to do it and handing out bucket loads of cash in return so okay you know, we're heading into some pretty uncertain times financially, economies all around the world. We all understand that. Um, but as I say, just fundamentally from a kind of a messaging and a PR perspective to launch the output of the fan survey, which probably requires a discussion all of its own, Jim. And it's certainly not for now, but a, a, an interesting piece of work, but one that is quite deeply flawed, I would say. Uh, for reasons that we won't go into now, but to have the sheer temerity to say that they're all for inclusivity and you know equal opportunity and to bring more fans into the sport and particularly females fans into the sport. And then within the matter of a few days to announce that we're going to a place where women are classed as secondhand citizens and you know 
well, we don't even need to go into the rules of what you can and can't do there. People can look it up for themselves if they don't already know. It was just an astonishingly bad piece of timing and PR, quite apart from the morals and the ethics of doing it in the first place. So, yeah, what a mess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was reading, I think it was Matt Oxley's article in Motorsports Magazine that, you know, Formula One going to Jeddah got almost ha- half of their funding was because of the Saudis. Yeah. To some extent. I, I don't know exactly what that was. I don't know if that was fees and licensing and that filled the coffer for the for the what the, the money the teams get from Formula One for where they finish in the constructors championship or, or exactly I I don't quite follow. I think it was actually Moto E that he was talking not, not sorry, not my uh, Formula E oh, uh, okay. which races there. And it, yeah, that that race is paid so heavily by the Saudi wealth fund that it yeah it basically subsidizes almost the rest of the championship completely so you know there is a lot of money at stake here so i mean just with the commercial hat on yeah you can understand that and as we say we're heading into some pretty choppy waters economically over the next few years for reasons that we all know about but uh, yeah i mean dawn are just they are spectacularly good at scoring own goals at the moment and <laughs> that was an absolute classic that one uh, uh, followed hot on the heels. <laughs> yes, I was going to say Ducati, who are almost, almost as inept as Dorna, um, quite who is looking after the mindset and the decision making of Francesco Bagnaia at the moment, either outside of Ducati and certainly within Ducati. It's it's hard to fathom. I mean, first of all, we have the unfortunate. And I'm using that word in the in a, in a very sort of flippant way. The unfortunate incident in Ibiza, where obviously he got the drink driving conviction, and presumably he'll end up in court on that at some point in the future when the wheels of uh, presumably fairly slow Spanish justice, you know, turn on that one because these things tend to take a while. Um, and then Ducati were conspicuous in their lack of comment. Either way over that whole incident which obviously happened during the summer break and the long summer break because of the Kimi ring didn't happen so it was longer than it would otherwise have been but that was troubling because you know they have the whole don't drink and drive kind of initiative thing and then their star rider gets caught drinking and driving and they've got nothing to say on the matter so that was troublesome and then again hot on the heels of you know the MotoGP championship wanting to be about inclusivity and bringing women into the sport Somebody thinks it's a great idea to allow Pecco Banyard to have a tribute helmet for a sports star who's been convicted of beating up women. I don't know. I mean, it seems to me like sometimes like the lunatics are in charge of the asylum. I don't know what you think. I mean, again, we better not get into too heavily into the personalities in terms of <laughs> who we're talking about in terms of the tribute helmet. Maybe you've got a bit more to say. I don't really follow that sport. That's more of an American thing. But what the hell? Well, I'll put it this way. I didn't catch that Benyai's helmet was a tribute. I, I didn't catch it. I'm okay. Let's let's call it what it is here. That was a Dennis Rodman tribute helmet. Okay, Dennis yeah. Rodman it was a is was was I guess I don't follow basketball, but he was a famous basketball player. He predominantly made his name playing with the Chicago Bulls when Jordan was there and then winning the five or uh, however many titles that they won. It was the fact that in court here in the U.S., three wives that he had all filed for divorce, citing that he did abuse them and whatnot, and he lost every one of those cases. 
And it is not pretty when you do that. Now, Ben Yaya said, well, that's because he was a great sportsman. Okay, fine. His personal life is separate than his sportsman life. But you think that Ducati would have somebody somewhere that just went, hey, uh, Pecco, you might want to rethink this one just a little bit. Mm. But, you know, riders are riders and they can do what they want. But there, there's, I, I think you have to have a greater sense of, of, of the world. Of your, you, 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 unfortunately, as these kind of riders are, they're in their own little box. They're in their own little world, right? There's, there's not much that happens for them outside of MotoGP. And everything that they're doing is taken care of for them. That's just the way that it is, right? Their travel arrangements are done. It's be here. Here's your ticket. Do this. Go here. Be here. Be here. They don't really, they're not really consumed by what happens outside the world. In the real world of everybody else, they live in a bubble, right? Formula One stars live in a bubble. But in the Matt Oxley article I saw when he was talking about Pecco's helmet was that he asked, uh, gosh, who is the journalist? I can I cannot think of his name, but he does PR for McLaren. And he used to work mm. right for I can't I, I've lost his name and I can't remember it. But he was he's a is it Matt something, um, whatever. No, I'm not sure. Not sure. Uh, Matt Bishop. Matt. Bishop. Oh, Matt, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I do know the name. Yeah. yeah so so Matt Bishop uh, takes care of PR for like uh, for Formula One for McLaren and he's and he, they kept po- and sort of that question was posed like, hey, would your drivers wear a helmet like that? And they're like, no. <laughs> Matt Bishop was like, nope, they wouldn't. It, it's not going to happen. So, you know, again, Ducati's got this thing, and they just didn't, no one, you know, even remotely would have stopped and said, hey, you, you got to do it. I get it. He's an American sports star and probably not that well-known in Europe, but still, eh, you know, just bad timing. Let's just check it, chalk it up to that. Yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, these guys do exist in a bubble and they're totally focused around their, you know, their profession and their art. And I get that. But they've got an army of PR people and various other helpers around them to prevent this sort of thing. I mean, maybe maybe Pecco really does admire Dennis Rodman. I mean, Dennis Rodman was convicted for drink driving as well. So they've got that in common. (laughs) So, um, you know, perhaps perhaps he's a role model in that regard. I don't know, but that was a sensationally stupid thing to have done, in my opinion, and it did nothing for the sport, you know, the wider sport, in terms of trying to appeal to the very people that the fan survey apparently was reaching out to. So, I don't know. I mean, you could say that Dennis Rodman was a great basketball player, but then you could say Adolf Hitler was a great public speaker, but is he going to, you know, run a swastika on his helmet at the next race? I don't know. Possibly. Anything could happen at this stage. Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, let's, <laughs> well, we'll just leave that there, folks, and let's talk about World Superbike. Rant over. <laughs> <laughs> There's just no good way to segue out of that one, sorry. <laughs> Magna Coors is this weekend for World Superbike. Uh, BSB is this weekend. Uh, Snetterton, you'll be at... You'll be at Snetterton. I'll try this again in English. You'll be at Snetterton this weekend, right, Rich? I will. I'm heading off hopefully tomorrow morning. I've got a few bits of work I need to clear out the way first. But uh, yeah, off to Snetterton for Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Hopefully we'll get to speak to a few people and get that onto the show if things go to plan. Although the weather forecast doesn't look terribly great for being out and about trotting around the paddock. But um, yeah, so we've got BSB. We're not quite into the showdown yet. I think we've got a couple of rounds to go. So there's still quite a few people vying to get into that top eight it is this year, I believe. 
for the all-important showdown with the last three rounds. So, yeah, Snetterton this weekend and Magnicourt in France for World Superbike, all to play for in World Superbike as well. So, again, I'll definitely be watching that when I get back next week uh, or Monday, Tuesday. Um, and we'll have to have a quick talk about that uh, on, well, whenever the next show happens in a week or two's time, Jim. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Moto America will be in New Jersey, uh, New Jersey Motorsports Park, for their race this weekend. Uh, the championship is between, the Superbike Championship is between uh, Danilo Petrucci and Jake Gagne. That is going to be interesting. Uh, Gagne has cut it down. The lead down to five points, or eight points, five points, eight points, something close to that. I don't remember exactly what it is, but it's all to play for there. Now, yep. another bit of news I found interesting is that after the Pittsburgh race, the Warhorse Ducati a super sport team that fields Josh Heron protested the Yamaha of Rocco Landers. They said that the, that the camshafts and crank bearings of his Yamaha were illegal. So Motor America took the engine apart, discovered that the crank shafts bearings were stock yamaha parts and that the camshafts i think it's gty catalog parts that are legal for a yamaha via the rule book of moto america so hiroko's motor was found to be completely legal but the interesting thing about it was that uh, rocco lander's father uh, he said that that teardown and having that inspected cost them between three to five thousand dollars to put that motor uh, take it apart, put the motor back together again, and get it ready to go again, which I no. was somewhat shocked that it cost them that much. Jim, question. Do yeah. you know, or if you don't, what's your opinion? If a team protests like that and the protest is thrown out, with the sort of cost that we're talking about for the team that was protested and exonerated, let's say, should the protesting team have to foot that bill? Uh, here, there is, uh, I don't know if I got this exactly right. This is from, from memory when I was reading about the, the whole story. Um, the horror horse team put up, I think something close to, to $5,000 to protest the motorcycle. Okay. Um, then that money was then given to Moto America. They took the motor, they tore it apart, inspected it, put it back, and then, uh, that money was then used to Moto America then keeps a portion of it. And I think the Landers team got $1,500 of the total amount that the Warhorse team put down. I'd have to look it back up to be exact, but it, it mm. is, it is something like that. So the team that is protested put, or sorry, the team that is protesting, another team has to put up a, uh, I don't know what you want to call it. There's a term for it, a significant amount of funds. They have to put money where their mouth is that, hey, this is bad, and we want to see whether you're legal or not. That money goes to the sanctioning body. Sanctioning body tears down the bike, uh, figures out whether it's right or wrong. If the team is exonerated, then like $1,500 of that goes to the uh, team that is found to be legal. So Yeah, yeah. Okay, interesting. Yeah. So it's something like that. I may have the numbers wrong, guys. I don't know it exactly, but uh, it is... Uh, I'm close. I know that much. <laughs> I'm not sure where the where the Moto America money why they take so much. It was for something, and I I just don't remember what I what I read. I read it a few days ago. All right, race time, right, Rich? Let's just talk about what actually <laughs> yeah, happened in better, Zada. So, yeah, race so through the races. We're gonna go, go. Yeah, We're in race through the races. That's that's what we're gonna do. Um, Moto three qualifying. The in the first QP, Munoz was the only guy who was the odd man out. 
Uh, there was talk of rain coming and whatnot, but it was Munoz, Falon, Rossi, and uh, Adrian Fernandez who all got through. They're the four fastest people. They go on to the Moto Two QP, or sorry, Moto Three QP Two session, and raindrops were falling. Not enough to make anybody go to a rain tire or anything like that, but there was rain. It was a sketchy. It was who could hang it out and leave it latest. That person was none other than Dennis Anshu who took pole. He was followed by Holgardo, Morera, Yamanaka, Guilvera to tie. Fagia was seventh, then Murphy in eighth. Mino was ninth, and the tenth was Adrian Fernandez. The interesting thing was that Anshu was uh, always flexing and holding his right shoulder that he injured in a training accident. We just don't know exactly how bad or anything. Everybody in KTM, including himself, were all very tight-lipped about what was wrong with that young boy's arm. I think he'd been around to Mark Marquez as if someone was shutting the windows for him. <laughs> you know, that's really never going to die. Shutting windows is never going to die. No, I'll always bring it up. <laughs> <laughs> so in, in the race, uh, when we got there on that Sunday, on the siding lap, Josh Watley almost high-sided himself. <laughs> off of the yeah. bike I'm not i didn't sure actually see that, that to be honest <laughs> yeah i didn't yeah, see it but, it uh... was pretty wild so he wound up uh, hanging on to it but he ran off into the gravel and eventually he had to uh put it down because the wall was coming and he was not going to stop before he actually got there when the race started on the question was could on go the distance his team didn't know if he could go the distance i'm sure he saw the the people at the clinical movie and they did something for him but this was uh, a little bit of a crazy um, crash fest to start out with. Sasaki went down in turn four. Uh, Garcia was very wide and whatnot and took a shortcut as a result. And then he was like, well, is he going to get a long lap penalty or not? Well, he didn't. So that was good. There was no further conduct there. But it was Anchu and Guevara, Morena, Hogardo, Yamanaka, and Fagia were all at the front. Guevara took a turn at the lead there for a while. He led for quite some time garcia screwed up and picked up the bike and ran wide and then he actually wound up going out and crashing out with like 20 laps 20 laps to go i mean i don't know where garcia's mind was but he definitely was off and out and not really focused or concentrating there he did remount get going again the front pack sort of stabilized with Guevara, Fagia, Hogardo, Anchu, Munoz, Suzuki, uh, all there at the front. Now, these people would mix it up and go here and there and scatter amongst with great passing and great riding. Fagia was flirting with track limits everywhere when he got to the front. Uh, you were waiting for a track limits warning to show up, and you just didn't know when it was going to. Uh, the top four had basically broken away a little bit this group of Fagia, Guevara, Hogardo, and Masia had a gap over Anchu and Suzuki and that lasted for a few laps. Uh, Garcia was eventually black flagged. Uh, not sure why but I think he went back out with the bike after he got back up after his crash and he was in a group of riders and he was mixing it up and he had he was a lap down and I don't think he had any reason for being in that fight. It was not his fight to be in but he was so race direction... That's that's why he was black flagged, Jim. Sorry to interrupt. No, go ahead. But, no. but he was dicing in the pack a lap down, ignoring blue flags, and that's why he got the black. All right. So with eight laps to go, Garcia gets black flagged and he's tossed out. Guevara's gone back to the front over Fazia, and it became a six-rider pack again. Anju had now pulled Suzuki back up to, to the lead group with them. Uh, 
Fazia finally gets a track limits warming with three, lap, three laps to go. You knew it was going to happen, you just didn't know when. It wound up being a four-rider group again uh, as the final, as uh, Hogardo and Suzuki now were falling off. They couldn't go any faster. So the race was then between Fazia, Masia, Anshu, and Guevara. I think Guevara had made a mistake, ran wide. Everybody got by. Um, Anshu was going for it but he was not able to go anywhere. Fazia would win the race and just barely with Masia Guevara and then Anchu. That would be the top four. Then it was Holgardo, Suzuki, Morera, Ortola, McPhee, and Nepa was the final top 10. It was a pretty fascinating race. It was good to see Fazia win as he really needed that. And it was good for Guevara, even though he did finish third, he was on the podium, which meant that he would now be the championship leader after this. Garcia was now, is now 11 points behind his teammate, and I really thought Garcia was going to be the kid that was going to win this title. Yeah. Maybe it's Guevara who's going to win this title now. It's definitely changed. There's some cracks maybe in Sergio's and Garcia's you know, mental yeah. capacity or his writing or... Something's going on because he did not look like himself this weekend. And, I, you know, everybody has those weekends. I think Acosta had some of those weekends when he was in Moto3 as well. Yeah, he's had a few of these weekends just of late, though, hasn't he? And it's certainly handing the kind of handing the momentum to Guevara. But I don't think we can necessarily, although we were, and I certainly was ruling Foggia out a few rounds ago. But. He's 35 points behind, I think, is it now? Which is not an insurmountable gap, particularly if Garcia's run of relatively poor form continues. And Guevara obviously needs to watch his back, I think. Um, I, I think Guevara's probably odds on uh, as we stand at the moment, but there's still that, that top three are definitely all very much still in with a shout. Agreed. I do like the fact that Fazio has now cut the lead to 35 points. It's not insurmountable, but it is now truly between these three, and it's going to be fascinating to see what happens at a fast track like Aragon. Uh, the sort of the heavy braking squared off and squirt it back out again nature of Motegi, and then you know the fast flowing uh, island that we love being Phillip Island. And, you know, the Malaysia with the long straights as well. Those, I don't know which way it's going to go because the tracks that I think are going to favor Honda don't seem to favor Honda. They favor KTM and vice versa. So it's fascinating for, to watch how this is all going to, to play out. But, Jim, all of those tracks that you've just mentioned either have very long straights or have very slow corners going onto fast-ish straights. And, you know, that Leopard Honda, for whatever reason, and we've talked about it many times, is such a weapon in a straight line. So I think Foggia, if he gets a bit of momentum going now, I, th I could see that 35-point gap that he's currently down dwindling quite a lot as we run into the last two to three races. Mm. Yeah, Foggia wins two, three on the trot here. Yeah, it's going to be all to play for, for sure. Yeah, but it was a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant Moto3 race. It was the best race of the day, you know, pretty much as usual as far as I'm concerned. It was a total crash fest, as you say, and poor old Dennis Andre finished fourth. Yet again, oh, what does he have to do? Don't know. Don't know. Uh, we shall see what he has to do. Let's move to a Moto2 and quickly go through qualifying in Moto2. To the disappointment of myself, all the Americans were in the QP1 session in Moto2. I <laughs> can't explain to you why. Roberts did get pimped, though. I mean, he was 
close. I mean, he could have been there, but he wasn't. Um, you know, by this time of the day, the sun had come back out, so they were going to have some good qualifying. Um, Bo Ben Schneider would get a long lap penalty for an infraction for holding up a rider on a fast lap. And I can't remember who he held up. Do you remember who he held up, Rich? I don't. I don't think I saw it, to be honest. Yeah, I didn't see it. I don't think there was video of it, but he was going to get a long lap penalty in the race regardless of that. But Delaporta, Bo Ben Schneider, uh, Joe Roberts, and Marshall Schroeder would come out of that session to go into the next session, the QP2 session. Now, Dixon had a crash in that session. I, as Simon Crafar said, from the looks of the angle that he was coming through turn 14 or 15, I, well, I think it was 15, mm. uh, it was like he wasn't going to make the corner anyway. I, I don't know what was what, what, what he was doing. It was a very weird crash. It was very, it very... Was. It was extremely late in the corner to be losing the front end. That's more of a thing that you do, you know, from the from on the brakes, off brakes, to the apex, and then out of the apex, you expect more of a high side kind of a thing had to happen at that point. But it definitely... Yeah, it just sort of drifted wide, and then the front just went. It was almost... I mean, it wasn't, but it was almost like he hit oil and like just sort of slid wide for no apparent reason. It was a bizarre, bizarre crash. It was. It meant that Dixon would... And the weird part was the bike went back onto the track, which was a scary thing. Mm. it had floundered around spun itself around and went back out onto the track it was fortunate in the respect that Dixon was able to pick up the bike and go into the pits and he was they worked furiously to try to get the bike back out again but they could not so he was not going to set a time whatsoever but the man who was the fastest out of that out of that qualifying session was Celestino Vietti who set a time who put him on pole and then he promptly crashed (laughs) <laughs> yes we've seen that before i'm beginning to wonder if this is a strategy <laughs> you know you go down and you put a yellow flag out nobody can can beat your spot but yeah so via uh Vietti would be on pole a rain albert Arantz had a really great qualifying to be second then it was alonzo lopez on the speed up boscacora deal then canet arbolino del porto with a great qualifying uh, you know your job's on the line and you <laughs> suddenly show up and decide to qualify well which is amazing then it was Aldegar Ayagura, who did not have a great qualifying session. Fernandez and Pat and Mar- Mattia Passini on a two-year-old run what you brung out of the back of the van. <laughs> qualifies 10th. Fair, Fair play to him, man, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fair yeah. play. So that was the qualifying session. Acosta couldn't come to grips with things. I don't know what was up with Acosta. He would finish. He would be 13th after qualifying. As we move into the race, Lopez... Uh, got a hole shot. Jake Dixon went down at turn two with a high side. It was kind of a nasty little crash, to be quite honest. Yeah, it was. Mm. Lopez, Arenas, Vietti, Cannon, and Agura were out. Were in the front. There was a gap of about uh, to, eight, to Augusto Fernandez of about seven-tenths of a second. Everybody was falling in this race, too. It was like Moto3. It was like we had riders going down everywhere. Vietti would crash. Uh, that was his fifth DNF that he's had in, in there. Then Pacini would go down with like 13 laps to go. The meanwhile, Lopez was out front, and the boy was just running, 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 and not really much happening. Nobody could really do anything with him. He simply was the class of the field, and Lopez would just run on to take the win. Now, the racing was good towards the back end of the pack, because Arenas, Fernandez, Ayagura, Arbolino, and then Acosta would all tend to get into the fight and would have a good battle along the way. Augusto, we know, 
comes on late in the race and he closed that gap and charged all the way up to the podium. It was Lopez, as I said, then Kinnett, then Augusto Fernandez. Arenas would sink from his high running second place to a fourth. Iaguer was fifth. And then Acosta came from his 13th qualifying position to finish sixth, which was a good ride for the, for the young Spaniard. From there, it was Arbolino, Chantra, Joe Roberts, and then Jeremy Alcoba finishing out your top 10. It was probably the least entertaining race of the weekend, wouldn't you say, Rich? Definitely, yeah. I mean, it was a, an attritional race again. As you say, there were quite a lot of fallers. Vietti, you know, really demonstrating a terrible weakness of falling off a bit too often. And I think that's almost game over for him in championship terms now. Um, yeah, I mean, not really a great deal else to say about the race, was no. there, Jim, to be honest, other than the fact, and we must just point this out, it's pretty obvious because the guy won the race, but a sensational performance from Alonso Lopez, and he has threatened this one for quite a while. I mean, he was second at Silverstone, I think it was. I forget where he finished at the Red Bull ring, but ever since he rocked up into that team, and let's just remember, although, again, the uh, Mr. Boscoscura, who owns the team, was pretty ruthless in turfing uh, Romani, uh, sorry, Romano Fanati at the team. And Fanati wasn't doing particularly well on the bike, certainly not in comparison to uh, Aldegar. So Lopez came in, I think, from around about Barcelona onwards and or possibly a race or two earlier, but uh, with about a third of the season gone anyway, and has pretty comprehensively shown Aldegar the way home uh, since he arrived. And yeah, I mean is looking by far and away the sort of the, the star find of the season in Moto2, very much uh, along the lines of, dare I say, somebody like Fabio Quattararo, who toured away on that chassis for a little while and had a couple of wins and suddenly found himself in MotoGP quite unexpectedly and with a few eyebrows raised at the times and look what happened after that. So, yeah, Lopez is looking like the real deal, isn't he? Yeah, Lop- Lopez was just amazing. There's no way around it. You cannot deny that the kid did a great job to win that race. Uh, interestingly, I was surprised that Ayagura finished as low as he did, and I was surprised that Costa actually got up to as high a fin- finishing position as it did. It did yeah. take the championship into a little different spin. Remember, Ayagura came in leading by one point in the championship, while his fifth place with Augusto Fernandez's podium leaves Augusto Fernandez on top, but it puts him only four points ahead. In it. Now, Kinnett has now found, fallen to 41 points behind. Vietti's fallen to 42 points behind. And Arbolino is 81 points behind. Those are your top five in the championship. I think it's safe to say that it's between Augusto Fernandez and Ayagura. And this one seems to be, if the Japanese rider is on, he can do the deed and he may win this championship. But the consistent Fernandez may be the guy who is going to take the championship based solely on the fact that he seems to always be at or near sniffing the podium, where Agura is either on the podium or kind of in that 7, 8, 9, 10 range. So yeah. I'm not sure how it's going to play out, but this is fascinating. I think this is one of, probably the best championship going right now is the Moto2 championship. Nothing against Augusto Fernandez. He's a quality rider, and he's been you know, slowly but surely coming up to this sort of level of performance over the last few seasons in the Moto2 category. But again, without retreading old ground, very perplexing to me why he's getting a uh, a graduation up into the KTM Gas Gas squad, really, because, you know, this time last year, Remy Gardner and Raul Fernandez were streets ahead of everybody else. 
so it's just a bit, yeah, it's all a bit incongruous as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> but there yeah. we go. I agree. I, I, none of what KTM is doing with their riders makes any sense, and I'll leave it at that. Yeah, none at all. Yeah. Let's talk about MotoGP now. Oh, yeah. The MotoGP guys, when they went to go to qualifying, it was raining. It was a heavier rain than what the Moto3 guys had had. And originally, most of the guys came out in that uh, QP1 session with reins on. Or, sorry, with slicks in QP1. My mistake. Yes. My yes. mistake. Uh, the odd man out was Jorge Martin as he was, he was in this Q1 session. Um, Alex Marquez crashed. Um, Bezeki w- was um, there at the top a little bit, then Martin, and basically it was like, you know, he st- um, they snuck in a really quick lap just before the heavy rain came to allow them to get through and into the second session. Now, it did rain harder in that little downtime between the two sessions, so it was interesting to know what was going to happen Almost all the riders initially went out with um, rain tires on, according to Simon Crayfire, as he was spotting everybody in the pit. The notable exception was Oliveira, who did not go out on anything other than his slicks. So we also knew going into the session that Benyaya will have a three-spot penalty for an FP2 infraction where he held up Alex Marquez. Let's talk about that after we get done with with qualifying, Rich. Yes, Uh, okay. (laughs) So... So was it wet enough or not? Who knows? But would you bet against Jack Miller in tricky conditions between whether it was a wet wet tire or whether it was a slick tire? No, you really wouldn't. And basically, that's what happened. Jack Miller went to a fabulous pole. Ben Yaya did his best to stay on the front row so that when his three-grid spot penalty put him back to a place that was at least reasonable. So he'd go from second. He'd then fall back with three spots to fifth. So he would still just be on the inside of that third row. Then Bezeki, who you know planned a great attack and looked really good there at the end to get it. Vinales looked good on the Aprilia. Then it was Zarco, Marini, Quattraro, who uh, Quattraro does not like it when there's an iffy in-between condition. I think Quattraro is fine when it's raining hard enough that everybody's on wets, and I think he's great when he's on slicks. But that in-between, Quattraro didn't want to do anything stupid either. So let's preface that as well. But Quattraro does seem to struggle in that changing condition part of it. Yeah. The lace was the same way. He had no no game, basically, in qualifying. Then Oliveira and Morbidelli and Renz rounding everybody out. So that is how qualifying finished. So going into the MotoGP race, we know... Hang on, ben- hang on Jim. Sorry, hang on, yes. you wanted to talk about Bagnola's three-pace. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> well, I guess what I was trying to say is that as we went into the start of it, we knew that Benyaya would have had that three-place grid penalty. However, in... Moto two, Bo Ben Snyder got a long lap penalty. What's going on with that, Rich? Do you think they to me they're the same incident? So why does the same incident have two different outcomes? Uh, quite frankly, I have absolutely no idea. I, I mean, it's just confusing beyond belief, really. I mean, one thing I was going to point out a little bit later on, but I'll do it now just so I don't forget is. If you take the long lap at Silverstone and the long lap at Misano, I mean, they were like literally three the, the, or the long lap time in Misano. It must have been at least two to two and a half, even three seconds longer than it was at Silverstone. So I just don't see how you can have a penalty like that, whether it's applied or not. Because if it takes you much longer to do a long lap in Misano, 
then it's not a fair system because you could win or lose a race on that and that could affect a championship, couldn't it? So I just think it's a, I think they've got to get rid of the long lap penalty um, or the long lap inconvenience, as I now call it, as of Sasaki's performance in Red Bull Ring. I agree just, with that. Just, just bizarre. And yeah, why people were getting handed out different penalties for seemingly having done the same thing. I mean, I did see the infraction that Banyaya committed, let's say, um, on Friday. And he literally went across the line with about one second to go. And he thought the flag had come out. So he kind of came around the, the right, left, turns one and two, thinking it was session over. But he and Alex Marquez and one other rider behind him, who I forget who it was, clearly just just got across the line before the chequered flag end of session flag came out. And so they were still on a hot lap and Banyaya had slowed down. And he looked over his uh, left shoulder, I think it was, yeah, instead of his right. <laughs> didn't didn't see them, and whereas he should have looked over his right. So, okay, fair enough. So he did impede Alex Marquez. FP2, big deal. You know, probably, despite all the other things that we've moaned about Banyara about, but I'm sure he's a nice enough chap. He could have trotted down pit lane after the session, gone into the LCR garage and said, sorry to Alex. Alex would have said, no problem, once he'd calmed down a little bit. And that would have been that. But no, you know, he gets a penalty for it. I just think, you know, really... Is every single little thing going to be penalised now? It's making, it's sucking all the joy out of the sport, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, it's almost as if they're like deciding how they want to manipulate who, so that the championship goes down to the wire. Well, it's just weird. I don't know. It, it encourages just... conspiracy theories like that, doesn't yeah, it? It, it? It does, because and particularly when they are giving different penalties for the same looking incident, it makes you think, mm, what's going on here? So yeah, yeah. odd. Very odd. Anyway, back to the beginning of the race. Back to the beginning of the race. Miller got a whole shot. Then Zarco Piro and Paul Sparger all went down the first turn. Paul did get up holding his arm. Do you know if he broke anything? Did you get an answer? I don't think he did. But I'm I don't not think sure. so. No, clearly he got a, a very nasty whack and he was completely innocent in that incident. Uh, but I think um, after they had had a you know an hour or so and had gone through the uh, the medical center and had a bit of treatment. I think everybody was pretty much sort of passed off as fit. No, no broken bones or anything. Yep. So then since Miller had the whole shot, it was Bastianini and Benyaya who were behind him. So Benyaya got off the line very well. And so did the beast, but Miller did what he usually does when he's out front. He falls off and he <laughs> yeah. did that. He did that at turn four. Bezeki went down at turn 10. It's like, whoa, geez, we're back into, <laughs> we're doing the same thing that the Moto2 and Moto3 guys did. And we're all falling off. Yeah. Um, Part of it might have been the fact that, that it was hotter on race day than it was on any other day that they had been there. And at the last minute, a lot of guys swapped from a soft rear to a medium rear so they could go the distance. Even Basecki's, or sorry, even Bastianini said that he had trouble with the, with the rear and he couldn't get it up to temperature and it took several laps for him to actually get there. It was actually a blessing that he then fell behind both uh, Bastianini and Vinales because he was able then to use their the heat off their bikes, the exhaust, the lack of airflow around the bike, however you want to look at it, to heat up his tires and bed them in and then he started to come alive. Now, Vinales was looking really good in second and he was trying to get ben, past Benyai at every chance that he could all the way around. But he couldn't seem to make anything stick. And if he did get close, you know, the Ducati and his horsepower would pull back away. And it was as if Benyaya was riding a very conscious race to be fast in the fast sections and mess up 
uh, Vinales' line or entries into places where there was a potential for him to go by. Vinales quickly got a track limits warning as a result because he was searching all over the track to find somewhere to get around, and Martin got a track limits warning as well. By 20 laps to go, Benyaev, Vinales, Bastianini, and Marini all had a 7 tenths lead over Quattraro and Alessio Spargaro. That gap would get bigger and bigger. Uh, Quattraro would get a track limits warning. It seems like uh, Austria and here get the most track limits warnings for some reason. I don't not sure why they do. Yeah. <laughs> they just seem to. Um, Marini got by Bastianini, and Bastianini would wind up going backwards a little bit with 12 to go. He wasn't out of the top four, but it was definitely he was lagging behind everybody else with Benyaya and Vinales just doing their thing at 10 laps to go. I mean, with 10 to go, or yeah, with 10 laps to go, Benyaya, Vinales, Bastianini, and Marini all had at least a 1.1 second lead over Quattraro, and he had a 2.3 second lead over Aleish. So the four guys out front were on a, definitely a different zip code than everybody else there. Then the top three start to break away. Marini kind of held station to run home in fourth. But the question then became, who, who who's going to win? What was going to happen? Well, Bastianini, having saved tires, went by Vinales. Vinales then was stuck with at least a, least a podium finish in third place. But then with six laps left Bastianini got a track limits warning so everybody's got a track limits warning except for Ben Yaya so you're thinking well geez if Ben Yaya runs over the track limit at the like with one two laps to go or he does it with one lap to go are they going to demote him one place because he didn't have a warning right but we've seen that mm. happen before so <laughs> I'm like thinking race direction is going to make a call here if Ben Yaya is even remotely close to a line because it's just you know their actions tend to breed conspiracy theories so one I'd have a conspiracy theory about that going on too right no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, thank you. But Bastianini rode the last five laps that were absolutely amazing. He pressured Ben Yaya everywhere that he could. In fact, he almost, he had it so out of shape at one point on the last lap that he almost took uh, Pecco down. He just missed the rear tire of the Ducati with his front and asked in a post-race cross conference about that riding and that move. He shot out, I know what I can and can't do. So the beast knows how to play the game, apparently, even you know politically, if you don't, if well. But yep. he, he wound up running. Bastianini wound up having the fastest lap of the race on the very last lap after having run wide to get around Benyaya. And when Benyaya, who had used up all the rear grip they had in his tire, came off the last corner, Bastianini tried like hell to get by him, pulled up alongside, and if the finish line was 10 feet farther down, Bastianini would have won, but he didn't. He was second. He was only three hundredths of a second behind his new teammate for next year, Ben Yaya. And that is how the race finished out with Vinales on the podium for the Aprilia, uh, Quattro, then Alessio Spargaro, Renz, Bender, Martin, and Alex Marquez finishing in 10th place. A good race at the end. It just took a while for this one to brew up, if you will. Yeah, it was a bit of a slow burner, but worth the wait at the end there. It was. In the championship, well, we that doesn't really change a whole lot except for the fact that Quattraro is now only 30 points ahead of Benyaya. Benyaya becomes the first Ducati rider to win four races in a row, which is pretty amazing. I would have thought Stoner would have owned that record from like 2007 mm, was, or something. I was, I was shocked. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was shocked, especially given how good the Ducati was in 2007 on the Bridgestones. 
but that means he's only 30 points away and you've got Aragon coming and you know you had a downbeat and downtrodden Quattrararo who was now who actually had that knife thing to you know did a finger knife to his throat as if they're all coming for me to take me down because the Ducati horde is coming so Quattrararo knows that he's that he's that these next tracks these next four or five tracks are going to be tough for him Again, we got to see about this engine and whether or not Yamaha can use another engine or use this engine that Quattrararo has a lot of speed with. Um, we got to look into that one and see what's going to happen. But uh, Alicia Spargo now sits third in the championship. He is three points behind Ben Yaya. Then Bastianini, who is now uh, quite a ways off. I mean, he's definitely 40 points. He's 40 points off of Alish, and he's 73 off of the lead. But boy, Bastianini on a factory bike next year? Mm, mm. There's some championship potential there, I think. Looking forward to it. It's going to be fun because he's going to shake up the apple cart. He's going to be the guy that just doesn't care <laughs> what happens, right? Yeah, there's going to be fireworks in that team next year, I think. Oh, he, he's, a, he's, he's just a racer's racer. I've, I've, I've come to really like Bastianini over this season. I really have. I, yeah. thought, I thought he opened his mouth up and shouldn't have when they started off in Qatar. And he said, I got a bike to win the championship with. Eh, yeah, you're on a year old Ducati. You got some settings. Everybody's trying to fill, figure out their factory bikes. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a lot of talk. Well, Bastianini has backed up that statement, and he really has. Yeah, he had a few spots that were a rough patch, but he's got it back together again now. And quite honestly, the livery on the bike, the old tribute to Fasto, oh, brilliant. was brilliant. I yeah. love, that is the one thing that I love. I love when people take an old look, a classic old look, and they redo it with a modern spin. I, I Those people who do that to me are brilliant people because I, I couldn't do it. But I think it's so cool to have a modern retro look on a bike. Just absolutely brilliant. Throwback, yep. brilliant. Loved it. They should have a throwback race. Honestly, they should have a throwback <laughs> race, Rich. Where everybody, like Yamaha runs livery from back in the 80s or something, right? Or or, or Honda has a, a Rothmans looking bike, right? I can't say Rothmans. I know cigarettes are banned. But it looks like one a little bit you know looks something like it i think it'd be cool i think it'd be well, cool. i'll tell you what jim if anybody from pepsi corporate's listening out let's have a pepsi suzuki for the last time that bike puts in an appearance i could not agree with you more on that i would love to see a pepsi <laughs> bike that would be fantastic i you know what i really want to see too i want to see a coca-cola ducati i just think it forks big time yeah <laughs> but anyway oh we can do so uh, I think that pretty much about does it, doesn't it, Richard? Yeah. Anything else? To, well, go ahead. Uh, uh, yeah, just a couple of things. I, I will be brief because we've been rambling on for an awfully long time. Uh, sorry to Gary Shavit, but um, and, and I've been guilty of this as well. But uh, I mean, Maverick Vinales, whoa, he's coming on strong, and I'm loving that shoulder cam. That, oh, is that a, shoulder cam's awesome. That is a brilliant, brilliant camera view. But yeah, Maverick is starting to find his feet, and for all the things that he's done wrong, and as much of a pain in the ass as he's been over the years and he definitely has I mean, no two ways about that and we've been quite tough with some of the things that we've said about him but he is a very 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 good motorcycle racer and really starting to find his feet and i think he might win a race this year he's getting very very close he was close. Yeah. over overriding a little bit just pushing it a little bit into a few of the turns and just kind of subdued his charge towards the front as it turned out and kind of dropped back a fair way towards the end there but I, he's coming and he's going to be a contender next year i think and you know i'm pleased in a way because we need as many fast guys up the front and as many different bikes up the front as we can get so that was one thing 
Point number two, just a couple more things. Point number two was thin crowd at Mizano this year. What was it, 50-something thousand on race day? Pretty poor. Yeah, it was poor. I think it was 57,000. Oh, just tick, just a tick under 58,000, I think. Yeah, so that's a bit worrying. Um, nothing more to say, just an observation, really. Uh, you know, Dorna has some way to go to get the numbers back up. And, you know, again, we won't go back into the fan survey now. But, uh, but I, I, I just want to mention one more thing because this is a classic and we almost need to have a um, most stupidest penalty of the race weekend slot on the show going forward Jim okay my honorable mention and there were a few to choose from to be fair was um can't remember the guy's first name but the stand-in rider on the Suzuki uh, Watanabe yes Watanabe yes uh, you know, never a guy that was going to be troubling the podium let's be honest uh, and did unfortunately get lapped towards the end was on a couple of uh, track excursion warnings or, or a warning towards the end. Last lap, last couple of turns, goes right off track to get out of the way of Banyaya and Bastianini coming through. Gets a five-second time penalty for that at the end of the race, added to his time. Now, OK, it doesn't cost him too much in the championship table, it's true, but a guy getting out of the race leaders so as not to catch a blue flag... Gets a five-second penalty for a track infringement. I mean, yeah. is that the most absurd thing you've ever heard? Uh, yeah, it goes to what we said. The idea that the stewards are not applying the rules equally is starting to cause problems, at least from an outside perspective. Well, I just think it, uh, I'd, I'd go so far as to say it's just, a, in this particular case, a, a stupid application of the rule, really. I mean, okay, he was on a track limits warning, fair enough, but... He jumped out of the way so as not to impede the, the races coming through to lap him, and he gets a penalty for it. That's just bonkers. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, who knows? <laughs> I really yeah. have no, no comment for it. It just, it's so strange. Anyway, there you go. Sorry to end on a sour oh, note, but no, uh, no, fine. just stupid in my opinion. Yep. All right, folks. Uh, that is the show. Hopefully, you enjoyed this one as well. And it's a little, little bit long, so we'll get out of here. And I want everybody just to ride safe. All I'll say, Jim, is uh, God bless the Queen. Long live the King. Cheers. Till next time.